would, look with me in Philippians chapter 1. Apostle Paul, after thanking God for these Philippian believers, he breaks into prayer. It's a very important prayer. And he prays, and he said, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Father, that is my prayer for us today, that our love would abound as we behold your Son. And we pray that you would do that for the glory of your name. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Of course, Wednesday we lost the beloved evangelist, Billy Graham, who preached to more people than anyone in the history of the church. Of course, that's because of radio and television and internet. A very vital figure in evangelical Christianity. The question is, how did God raise up and prepare a Billy Graham? Well, I would submit to you, it was by a long line of Christians who abounded in love and devoted themselves to the most excellent things. For instance, Billy Graham was converted at a crusade in Charlotte, North Carolina in 1934. That crusade was preached by Mordecai Ham. The story goes, there was a 24-year-old fellow named Albert McMakin. He had been going to those meetings at night, and so he began to talk to this 16-year-old boy, a very reluctant fellow. He wanted him to come to those meetings. He loved this guy, and he wanted him to hear this gospel. And finally, this 16-year-old boy went one evening, and he heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. His heart was melted. He saw Christ as beautiful the first time in his life. And Billy Graham, at the age of 16 years old, was converted. But the question is, how did Mordecai Ham get over to Charlotte for that meeting? You may not know this, but Mordecai Ham was a Kentucky evangelist. From Bowling Green. How did Mordecai Ham end up in Charlotte? Well, there was an evangelist named Billy Sunday. And 10 years before that meeting in 34, Billy Sunday came to preach in Charlotte in 24. Billy Sunday had been a Major League Baseball player, and now he's a gospel evangelist. And he preached at that meeting, and out of that meeting, came a men's prayer and fellowship group called the Billy Sunday Layman Evangelistic Team or group. And out of that meeting, you have these men who are growing in grace and they invite Mordecai Ham 10 years later to come preach. And so really, Billy Sunday had a significant impact on that. But here's the question. How did Billy Sunday go from being a Major League Baseball player to being a gospel evangelist? Well, 
The answer is in large part due to a man named Wilbur Chapman. He was an evangelist. And Billy Sunday had been converted in Chicago. And not long after his conversion, he met Wilbur Chapman. And Wilbur Chapman began to invest in Billy Sunday's life. Billy Sunday became a part of Wilbur Chapman's team, in fact. He was discipled by Wilbur Chapman. But here's the question. Who impacted Wilbur Chapman? It was a man named Dwight L. Moody. Wilbur Chapman was a college student. And on, in the late 1870s, he went to a, an evangelistic crusade in Chicago. Preached by Dwight L. Moody. And after one of those services, Dwight L. Moody sat down with Wilbur Chapman. And personally counseled him. And he, Chapman received certainty of his salvation that evening. And he began to be discipled by, uh, by Moody. And he became a part of Moody's team. But here's the question. Who impacted Dwight L. Moody? It was a Sunday school teacher. On a particular Saturday afternoon, uh, this Sunday school teacher had been encouraged by someone to go visit all the fellows in his class. And so he went to a shoe store in Chicago... And he led one of those boys in his class to Christ. That boy's name was Dwight L. Moody. But here's the question. Who encouraged this Sunday school teacher whose name was Edward Kimball to go visit Dwight L. Moody? We don't know. But God does. Even if this man died in anonymity... Not knowing that his loving act of encouraging Edward Kimball to go visit Dwight L. Moody. That would lead to a chain of events that would impact the world for the gospel. Here's my point. Love for God. Love for his gospel. Love for people. Love for sinners. Drove all of these connections that led to a worldwide impact for the gospel. Love generated by the gospel. Love directed by the gospel. And the apostle Paul is going to teach us today that this is the model life. This is the successful life. Love is the goal And the fuel for everything that has ultimate significance. Love is the goal and the fuel for everything that has ultimate significance. And we learn this model life of love, interestingly enough, from a model prayer. We see this at the beginning of verse 9. I call it love's cry because that's what prayer is. It's love's cry. When you come to God, it's it's an expression of your love for God. And when you pray for others, it's an expression of your love for your neighbors. This apostle Paul writes, and it is my prayer. Now, he just got through thanking God for these Philippian believers and their partnership in the gospel. And the fact that they are partakers of grace. And he said something very radical in verse 8. He said, my heart. Heart yearns 
with the affections of Christ for you. We saw that that is the Christian life. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is Christ living out his life through the believer. And then Paul breaks out in this prayer. Now, Paul often begins with prayer. And this teaches us that a central first step in impacting anyone with the gospel is to pray for them. And I believe that it is true that there's no truer gauge of a person's spiritual maturity than the frequency, the fervency, and the content of their prayers. Because the truest longings of the heart come out in prayer. And when our longings do not line up with the prayers that we read in Scripture, prayers we read, for instance, in the Psalms, prayers we read from Jesus, prayers we read from the Apostle Paul, and there are several, then we need to adjust our longings. We need to realign our longings with God and His will. We need to confess, we repent, and and ask in faith for Him to change our longings. Indeed, this prayer that we read should be the prayer that every pastor prays for his church. It should be the prayer that every husband and every wife prays for their spouse. It should be the prayer that that every mother, every dad prays for their children. It should be the prayer that we pray for ourselves. And that leads me to a, a question that I would like to submit to you as we get into this prayer. If you could request anything from the only one who has infinite resources, what would you ask of him? Well, the Apostle Paul asked God to give the Philippian believers, and because this book is canonical, we could say the Fisherville believers, abounding love. In fact, we see love centrality in the second part of verse 9. He says, and I pray that your love may abound more and more. That tells us that love is not static. It's dynamic. It can grow. It can mature. It can, it can abound. Of course, love is the mark of a Christian. Jesus said that himself in John 13. John 13, 35. This is how they will know that you are my disciples. That you have love for one another. Love is the fruit of the Spirit. Now, the Philippians, and every Christian for that matter, already had this capacity. Note, he says, he says, your love. It's a love that they presently have. Indeed, we saw in chapter 1, verse 6, that God had begun a good work in the Philippians. How do we know that he had begun a good work? In part, by their love. And one of the means that God uses to complete what he has begun, as he says in chapter 1, verse 6, is prayer. Prayer. Now, years earlier, when an existing love needed growing, Paul also prayed this in 
1 Thessalonians 3. When he prayed for the Thessalonians, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love. Now what Paul has in mind here is not mere sentimentalism. Valentine's Day love. The love he's referring to here is the word agape. This is cruciform love. You go, what is the word cruciform? Well, it's a Latin word that you need to know. It means love in the shape of the cross. That's what love is that the Apostle Paul is referring to here. It's love in the shape of the cross. This is less about fuzzy feelings. You don't even have to necessarily like the person. But it's about the inconvenience and the messiness that comes with putting other people's needs before your own. That's supernatural love. Certainly not natural to us, is it? It's an alien love that we have to pray for. And that God gives us the moment we're converted. That has to grow and mature. But for cruciform love. And by the way, it, it requires a church to show this love. You can't live this kind of love in isolation. That's just another expression of self-love. Never has anyone in the history of, the, of Christianity demonstrated cruciform love without being immersed in the body of Christ. But in order for this love to be to take root and to stay rooted, it has to be informed by a particular content. That brings us to love's content in the last part of verse 9. He says, I pray that this love would abound more and more with knowledge in all discernment. Now, in today's religious climate, people often pit love. Now, this is their understanding of love. It's a non-critiquing, non-judgmental love, okay? That's expressed as non-judgmental tolerance. And they will pit that kind of love against revealed truth. You hear it all the time. Of course, the opposite error can also happen. In fact, the world I live in, this is more times than not the error. We pit truth and revealed truth and knowledge against love. Paul would say both extremes are sub-Christian. In fact, it's not real love and it's not real knowledge. He says... Cruciform love is informed by knowledge and discernment. Now, the word knowledge, the word is used 20 times in the New Testament. 15 of those times is used by Paul himself. And every time, on every single one of those times, it's referring to the knowledge of the things of God. For instance, he uses that word in Colossians 1.9. It's the knowledge of God's will. In Romans 10, verse 2, it's the knowledge of God's righteousness. In Ephesians 4, 13, it's the knowledge of the Son of God. In Romans 3, verse 20, it's the knowledge of sin, which is always sin against God. In 1 Timothy 2, verse 4, it's the knowledge of truth. So this love that Paul is praying for 
is a love that's rooted in this knowledge. The word discernment that you see there, it's the only place in the New Testament it's used. So what's he referring to there? Well, that word is often used in the ancient Greek literature to refer to moral perception. It's used as well 22 times in Proverbs, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And in those places in Proverbs, it refers to practical insight that informs conduct. And so Paul is praying that the Philippians and the Fishervillians might express their love. And that their love might grow that shows both a knowledge of the things of God and how to apply that knowledge given a set of circumstances. In other words, it's not an anything goes kind of love. That's not love at all. Now, think about how countercultural that is today. In a world that says in order to be loving... You, you have to believe that all truth claims are the same. Or that there is no truth. But contrary to that kind of thinking, we need knowledge of the things of God and discernment in order to truly love. We also need this knowledge and discernment to know what really matters. It brings us to love's consequence in verse 10. Notice he says... He prays that this love would abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that, see how this prayer builds on itself? So that you may approve what is excellent. Now that word approve was a a term that was used for a method of testing metals and coins. So you test these metals and coins to determine their standard in what was superior. Now, you think about that. Paul is praying that these believers, that Fisherville would have the ability to discern the really important issues. Or as Isaiah 32, 8 says, he who is noble plans noble things. Noble things on which he stands. It is someone who has the knowledge, the love, the discernment to discern what is most excellent. In other words, based on what demonstrates love for God, love for his gospel, love for his people, and the knowledge of the things of God. It's discerning the most excellent option in every set of circumstances. Now, the application is endless. You're in your marriage. And you're trying to negotiate and trying to determine what options to take. What what plan to take. What decisions to make. How to treat your spouse given a set of circumstances. It's being able to prove what is most excellent. How do you use your time, discretionary time? How do you use your resources? What is your role in the local church? 
It's being able to discern and approve the most excellent things. Or if you're in a counseling situation, knowing how to apply the gospel, knowing the most excellent way to take, given a set of circumstances. Of course, the Apostle Paul is writing here to the church at large, the the local church, and to the degree that the body of Christ grows in its capacity to approve what is most excellent, there will be unity. And the degree that a church does not know how to approve what is most excellent, there will be division. That is always the reason for division. Because you have people within a body who cannot understand the most excellent way. It may be no one understands the most excellent way, or maybe there are some who do and some who don't. But that always leads to division. That reminds me of Augustine's insight that says, the only thing that really unites us is a common desire to the same ends. The, a common desire to the same ends. And Paul says a church that can discern the most excellent things will have unity. Remember, he's addressing division. He's going to get that to chapter 2. And so when God gives us hearts that loves others, now that's supernatural. It's natural to love your own. Even a pagan can love his, his family, his blood family in a certain way. But this is a supernatural love where, where you are loving people sacrificially. When God gives you a heart to love others in that way, with, the, with knowledge and discernment, When he redeems you from your selfishness, what's ultimately important begins to come into focus. Our spiritual palate begins to develop taste for the things that count. That happens at the individual level, and it happens at the corporate level. I've seen it in my own life. There were things I used to enjoy doing. They weren't necessarily sinful things, but they weren't the most excellent things. They weren't the best way to invest my time. And we see it also at the corporate level. When these things are happening, a church begins to progressively, increasingly come to recognize and and long for the most excellent things. That's when you see a church is maturing. But unfortunately, it's clear from the division in Philippi that there was a difficulty in telling the difference Between biblical truths, biblical principles in which you must be united and on secondary issues in which there is liberty to disagree. We'll see that in chapter 2. We'll see that in chapter 4. In other words, not every difference and not every disagreement is a grounds for division. That's why Paul is praying this before he gets into chapter 2. On ultimate issues... Paul was a bulldog. For instance, in chapter 3, verse 2, he says, look out for the dogs. Paul was not seeker friendly. Look out for the evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. On the important gospel issues, Paul was very jealous and zealous. But on lesser issues, the color of the carpet, don't sweat the small stuff. Now, how do I know he didn't sweat the small stuff? Because in 13 letters, he never mentioned the small stuff. 
because it was irrelevant to him. Even though the small stuff seems to be the highest of relevance in a lot of churches. And oh, how churches and marriages need God to answer this prayer. How often do churches and how often do marriages have strained and estranged relationships that stem from a lack of knowledge and discernment and ability to approve what is most excellent? Refusing to see any issue as a secondary issue. Every issue is level one. That relationship, whether it's a marriage or a church, is always subject to division. And the stakes are so high. The stakes are so high. That brings us to the second part of verse 10. Love's consecration. He says, I pray that this love would abound more and more with with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. What is the day of Christ? His day of his return. It's the day of his reckoning. It's the second time he's mentioned this. There's a day of reckoning coming for every person on the earth. Every person would be held accountable for their deeds done in the body. Christ will come in that second return in judgment. It's the day of Christ. Paul is preparing us for the day of Christ. Now note, it appears that knowledge... And discernment and the ability to approve what is excellent and abounding love is crucial in uh, preparing for that return. Notice, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Your love needs to abound. You need to grow in knowledge and discernment. You need to be able to learn to approve that which is most excellent and so be pure And blameless. Now that word pure comes from two words. Sun, S-U-N, and to judge. It was used of fine pottery. Sometimes the shucksters would try to sell you fake pottery or pottery that was not of high quality. Like the Rolex I bought in New York City my first trip there. Looked just like a new, uh, an expensive Rolex. I got it for $50 because I'm a bargain shopper. And the spring fell out of that thing two weeks later. But they would put this pottery <clears throat> under the sun. And under the scrutiny of the sun, they could judge whether this pottery was worth a high price. It came under the scrutiny of the light. And so the word is used here of a life that is under scrutiny. Ultimately, the scrutiny of Christ when he returns, Paul says. Of course, all the circumstances of life, the temptations and the struggles and the stresses of life will expose whether this life has cracks in it or not. That requires abounding love, doesn't it? It requires knowledge. It requires discernment. That's why we preach through books of the Bible. We don't want to just give you a topic to reflect on for the week. We want you to learn the Word of God. And we believe the only way to do that is by giving you the whole counsel of God. 
Because we're preparing you for the day of Christ. That's what Paul is doing. And notice the word blameless. It means literally not to stumble. It's not to give offense to others. Because of your unrepentant sin. Paul wants them to stand well under scrutiny. In other words, Christian growth isn't the end goal. It's an eye towards the end. The day of Christ. The glory of Christ. Preparation for that day. In other words, Paul is saying, in short, when he returns, let him find you abounding in love. With knowledge and discernment. Approving what is most excellent. Of course, if our love is the basis of our hope, we're in a world of hurt, aren't we? If our love is the ground of our hope and our salvation, every single one of us is in a world of hurt. Because there's no one in here that has loved perfectly even this morning. And that brings us to verse 11. And why verse 11 is such good news. Love's conception. Paul says, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. It's the seventh time he's mentioned the Christ in 11 verses. The apostle Paul cannot get over the person, the work, and the worth of Christ. Paul is saying the ground of your salvation is not your capacity to love. It's not your capacity to discern. It's not your capacity to approve what is excellent. The ground of your salvation is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. If you believe you can obey to, to such a standard that God will be impressed with the effulgence of your glory, you're going to have a rude awakening. The highest righteous deeds of any human is filthy rags to a holy God, a righteous God. The righteousness that can stand before God is, is a perfect righteousness. And that righteousness is Christ's righteousness himself. When we trust in Christ, when we, when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, his righteousness is imputed to us. It's credited to us. That's the fancy term justification. You are justified before God. You are accepted in the beloved. You are accepted in Christ. You are saying Christ's death is the death I deserve. Taking God's judgment in my place. And Christ's righteousness is the righteousness that I need to stand before God. But his imputed righteousness begins at that moment of conversion... To be worked in the believer. And we see the fruit of righteousness. That flows out of that. It's the fruit of the spirit. Jesus in other words. Is the mediator through whom God will answer Paul's prayer. You never get past Christ. And it's this work of Christ that transforms us. From the inside out. That's why. Because of a Messiah. Who's been raised from the grave. Which means he lives in that forever. 
And because of a Messiah who has ascended to the right hand of the Father, which means he rules and that forever. There is no hopeless situation. There's no hopeless situation. Your marriage isn't hopeless. Your parenting isn't hopeless. There's no hopeless situation. Because our hope has been raised from the dead. And it's this hope that transforms us to live in a way that's not natural to us. What's natural to us is to live for our own glory. But what this hope does, this Christ does, is he transforms us where we begin to live for the glory of God. And that brings us to love's chief end. The second part of verse 11, he says, notice, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. This was Paul's theme song. It was the song of his heart. In fact, he begins Philippians with this theme song. He ends Philippians, Philippians 4 verse 20, with this theme song to the praise and the glory of our God. And even in the middle, he gives us this theme song that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And they will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this increasingly becomes the song of those whose love is abounding more and more. With knowledge and discernment. Being able to approve that which is excellent. When you have a church corporately. Whose song is the glory of God. You have a unified church. You have a loving church. When you have a marriage. Where both the husband and the wife. Are living for the glory of God. Abounding in love. You have a healthy marriage. Paul recognizes that. So let's close this out. This is a model prayer. Praying for a model life. Truth is, I don't often pray this way. Not as I should. Neither do you probably. I tend to get fixated on temporal here and now issues. And those are fine to pray. Peter says, cast all your cares upon him. So we can pray for health issues. We can pray for job, career issues. We can pray for financial issues. Those are biblical things to pray for. But they're not enough. If that's all we're praying, that is a a symptom that my heart is not burdened with the things that Scripture is burdened with. And so as we close, I want us to consider this prayer, and I want to ask you three application questions. The first question is this. What should I... Be desiring myself for myself because of what Paul prays here. What should I be praying for myself because of what Paul prays here? Abounding love. Is there people that you avoid? 
are people that you have resentful hostility towards, you've got room to grow in love. And so our hearts cry as we consider this prayer is that that our hearts would abound in this kind of love. Are you struggling in your marriage? Pray that God would cause your heart to abound in love for your mate. Are you struggling in a friendship? Maybe you recognize, I don't, I don't really have a knowledge of the things of God. It might, be, it might require you opening your Bible and disciplining yourself towards those things. Learning discernment. Recognizing maybe the, the waste of your time reflects the fact you're not approving what is most excellent in your life. It's a sin to waste your time. It's a sin to waste your money. That's not to mean that we can't have leisure time. Leisure time helps us regroup. But leisure time's not the end. Second question. What should I be rejoicing in, in my brothers and sisters in Christ? Because of what Paul prays. Now, why is this important? Because, again, when you have a church family gathered together from so many different backgrounds, different ages, different generations. Man, there's a generational divide and it's always been that way. It's easy to resent or to just misrepresent in your mind and heart those people who are different than you. But maybe the Lord can give you a new love by learning how to rejoice in what you see noble in their life. Maybe you see this person's a very loving person. This person has knowledge of the things of God. This person has discernment. This person approves what is excellent. This person is very committed to the church. This person is committed to the things of God. What should I be rejoicing in in my brothers and sisters in Christ because of what Paul prays here? And then finally, what should I be praying for, for my brothers and sisters in Christ? Because of what Paul prays here. Maybe you can memorize this prayer. And it can become a part of what you pray every day for the people of God. Take you a church register. And pray for each person in the church. We do that on Monday nights. You may not know this, but we pray for you. Every Monday night, we hand out names. It's not a gossip session, we, but we pray for you. And we pray prayers like this for you. If you're a member of our church, you've been prayed for multiple times. Maybe you could do this at home. I heard one guy say the two most important books for a pastor... Is the Bible and the church directory. And I think there's something to that. But it may be the most two important books for any Christian in a church. Praying that love would abound. With knowledge. And that's why we preach. That's why we teach. That's why we disciple. Not so that you can just have head knowledge. It's so that you can actually love correctly and rightly. And have discernment. And know how to approve that which is most excellent. So here we have it. The model prayer. There's other model prayers. If you want to memorize Paul's prayers, you can go to Ephesians 1. And memorize verses 
15 to 23. Chapter 3 of Ephesians. Memorize verses 12 to the end of that, uh, verse 20. Philemon 6 is a very short prayer that Paul prays. And in Colossians 1, 9 to 14. That's five prayers from the Apostle Paul that you can memorize. Or Jesus' prayer, the Lord's prayer. Or the prayers of the psalmist. There's so many prayers that we can memorize. These are all model prayers. And we see here as well the model life. And that is my prayer for you. Let's, let's close in prayer. Father, I can't improve on the inspired, inerrant, infallible prayer of the Apostle Paul. I pray that every person here, that their love would abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. That they may approve what is most excellent, the noble things. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Being filled with the fruit of righteousness. Which comes through Jesus Christ. To the praise and glory of the living God. I pray that for every person here. And Father, there's some here who've never trusted Christ. This love is alien to them. It's just a natural love that they have. And I'm asking you, Lord, that you give them the new birth that will reflect itself in this new love. The very love of Christ lived through them. We ask this for the name of Christ. Amen. So we stand and as we sing.